Hey guys, welcome to episode 80 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So this episode is actually really special because July 3rd was our three-year podcast anniversary. Now that's a shocker. I just can't even believe that we've made it this far. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and I can't believe it's been three three years ago we did that episode on Hinter KFAC. Hinter KFAC feels like it's been like five years, at least. Yeah, I feel It feels like... like it's so long ago. Yeah, because, well, I mean, we've covered 79 cases. That's true. 78 cases since then. That's true, definitely. They all kind of, like, blend together a little bit. Sometimes people will ask a question about, like, episode 19, and then I have to give myself a refresher and then respond because I forget. No, it's true. Like, even, even a couple friends of mine, they'll ask me about episodes, and I'm like, wait a minute, is that, um, guys, what episode are you listening to? Because, like, they'll just blurt out facts, and I have no idea at first what they're talking about because it's it's a while ago. You yes, know? It's and there's so been so many cases. But um, we just wanted to thank you for our listeners we just wanted to say thank you to all of our listeners who have kind of been with us for these whole three years the old listeners and the new listeners that are just joining us on our journey now or just last year but you guys have kind of watched us grow not just with the podcast because oh my god our audio was horrible in the beginning but also throughout our lives right when we first started this episode we only just moved into this apartment yeah we were only dating so they saw us get engaged get married and we have more exciting news is that we are under contract to buy a house it's pretty exciting yeah so we're <laughs> you guys are with us for one more step it's really it's really awesome and i and i love the community that we've built and and it, you know, if it wasn't for you guys, we wouldn't be where we are right now. So, I I just want to say thank you to all of you. You know. Yes, and I want to say thank you to you, John, because I never would have started the podcast without well, that's you. That's very nice. Well, I want to say thank you for all your hard work. Oh wow, this is really yeah, nice. This is good. Sharing this time. Is good. <laughs> right on the air. Yes. So, again, thanks, guys. We just really can't say that enough because we would be nothing without you and. Like John said, it's the perfect little community that we have. And everyone's really supportive and great and respectful, and we just love it. And of course, as always, we are going to thank our Patreons at the end of the episode because we're also so grateful for that. If um, you want to join our Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We just released two episodes again last month. The first was on Savannah Greywind, and the second was on the Schwartz family. And that was one hell of a ride, ladies <laughs> yeah. and gentlemen. That is good. No, that is, that's a really good case. And like we always say, these cases, they're not just short, shorter cases. They're always over an hour long. And if you donate $1 to $2, you get one of those episodes a month. And five and above is two of those episodes. And I think we're up with 27 episodes now we have on Patreon. Yeah. And Patreon's always, um, it's always fun. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love both, but for some reason, I feel like sometimes I break I break loose a little bit more when it comes to Patreon. Yeah, uh, you're like these people like me, so I can <laughs> yeah, kind of like at relax. least you know because I know sometimes I just go on random tangents and I make no sense. But you know, like for some reason, I I, I really I I really like to do that and that's really, your safe space. It's my safe space, yeah. Because I know, like you said, I know everyone likes me so far. So you know, <laughs> no, but I know I love all of you guys. So that's what's important. Yeah. So um. Again, wait for the end of that episode so you'll hear your name if you haven't already. Okay, should we get started? Let's do it. 
This case brings us to the early fall of 1979 in Southern California, where another serial killer was announced to be on the loose. Yes, I said another, because 1979 was a busy time for murderers. Those that were active were Lawrence Bittiger, the Golden State Killer, Randy Kraft, and within that year, the Hillside Strangler and the Dating Game Killer had just been captured. You have to say to yourself, what is going on in the late 70s? <laughs> well, what was happening was there was a little bit of a different strategy with local law enforcement and the FBI. See, they were thinking, if someone's on the loose that's looking for girls with long brown hair, we should warn the public so those people could be on their toes, like waiting and kind of being ready to protect themselves. But now we've learned a little bit more about the psychopathy of these killers and what they like. Like they like the media attention. They like all of that stuff. So let's not give them attention. Let's not introduce them to the public. Let's not name them these names that sound interesting. Right. Which like it almost empowers them to continue. Right. And I mean, that's good and bad. Good because we're not giving those murderers um, the attention that they're they're seeking. But also bad because we probably have five serial killers right now that we just don't know about. Probably, yeah. And we wouldn't know. (laughs) Um, There's also a lot of psychological studies that say there was an influx of serial killers in the late 1970s and 80s because of people being raised by those who were at war, World War II, and those that experienced war, Vietnam. Okay. So there's see, yeah. that's also a theory, too. Okay. Okay, so the citizens were terrified. Just adding another killer to that list. This is why when police announced that there was a serial rapist and murderer active in the greater Santa Ana area, it caused mass panic. Women stopped sleeping alone at night. The sales of firearms skyrocketed, as did people taking self-defense classes. The killer was called the Bedroom Basher because of his M.O. He would enter into a woman's home between the hours of midnight and 4 a.m. He would attack them and drag them to their bedrooms using a blunt force object, usually a 2 by 4 or a mallet, and then he would rape them. By September of 1979, there had been four victims between the ages of 17 and 31 that had been attacked by him. But the bedroom basher was not deterred by the reports on the news, and he was going to strike again in Tustin, California. But this time, there would be two victims, as the woman he chose to attack was pregnant and two weeks past her due date. She was exhausted and in bed when he walked right through her front door. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. In 1977, Diana Diallo was 18 years old and single. She had just become legal and was allowed to drink and often frequented the bars near her home. Her favorite was the Handlebar Saloon. One night, she was there with her friend when they were approached by an aggressive man. No matter what the girl said, he wouldn't leave them alone. 
Finally, another man came over and was able to get the other man to leave them alone. The girls thanked him, and he just gave them a smile. Diana was intrigued, so she went over to the attractive man and asked him if she could buy him a drink, as a thank you. He agreed, and to his surprise, she ordered shots and kept him laughing the whole night. But that was what Diana was like. She was fun and fiery, and everyone who met her loved being around her. The man, Kevin Green, ended up asking Diana to go on a date with him after that. After that night, the couple became obsessed with each other. Others said that there was not a moment that the couple was together that they weren't all over each other. The couple moved quickly and were fast to tell each other that they were in love. Diana worked with her mother at a t-shirt factory, and Kevin worked as a helicopter mechanic in the Marines at a nearby base. Kevin had been promoted to corporal in peacetime, and the couple made decent money for the late 1970s, but we also have to take into account that they lived in Southern California, which was pretty expensive, and still is today. But the money was never an issue with Kevin and Diana because they were just so happy with each other. So happy, in fact, that Kevin asked Diana to marry him. Diana's father was not too happy about the proposal. Maybe it was because Kevin didn't ask him first. That's a big thing. You can't, (laughs) you, you have to, you have to ask the father. You just do. Well, I think it depends on the relationship. You still do. Yeah, I guess you're right. But I think what was more of a factor was the fact that Diana was really close with her dad and he didn't ask him. But on top of that, her father was an Air Force guy, right? And Kevin's a Marine guy, so. Oh, okay. So I see what's going on here. There's a little, you know, competition there. And um, he also really kind of didn't want his daughter to date someone that was in the military at all because... You know, it's it's a lifestyle where you may be asked to move around a lot. And he kind of wanted his daughter to stay close with him. Okay, I can understand that. But one other reason why Diana's father might not have been too happy about the marriage was the fact that Kevin, although he was only one year older than Diana, had been married before. But her mother was the one who loved Kevin and was going to try and make it so her husband would come around to the idea that her daughter was getting married, no matter what they thought. The couple had a large church wedding, and within weeks of the big day, Diana found out that she was pregnant. They moved pretty quickly. (laughs) They did move pretty quickly. (laughs) Everyone in both Kevin and Diana's families were so excited for the arrival of a beautiful baby girl. The couple took Lamaze classes, and together they bought and put together furniture, which can be stressful. Extremely stressful. (laughs) They even chose a name for the little girl, Chantal Marie. This brings us to that fateful night in September, September 30th. At this point, Diana is nine and a half months pregnant. She was so exhausted and just ready to have her baby girl. The couple watched a movie together and then afterwards got ready for bed. However, tensions, as you can imagine, were running pretty high and the couple got into a pretty intense fight. So to cool off, Kevin chose to leave the apartment. He said he was going out to get food, and he left. As he shut the front door behind him, he realized that he didn't have a key for it on him. Because he was frustrated from the fight, he left anyway. 
See, so that's really that's horrible already. We're setting we're setting the stage here for something bad because you're fighting already. You the last thing you want to do is like go back inside and be like, hey, give me the key. <laughs> I'm locking the door. I'm mad at you, you know, and then leave. So you're just leaving the front door open. I would never do that. It ever. does ruin the dramatic exit, I will say, but it does. The, it does. But at the same time, they know that there is a serial killer and rapist on the loose that is preying on women who live alone on first floor apartment complexes. Right. And not to mention your new wife is nine and a half months pregnant. Yeah. So I would not have done that. But hey. <laughs> yeah. At that point, it's even a stressor to like get up from the bed and lock the door. Oh, I'm <laughs> sure. So Kevin is going to drive to the Jack in the Box that was near them, but it was very crowded. So he chose to drive around and go to another one that was just over three miles away. He returned home about 40 minutes after he left. So I like first thought I would say 40 minutes is a long time to be gone. But we also don't know if there was a line, if there was like a drive through. So we don't know any of that. Yeah, I mean, you but know, 40 yeah. minutes is 40 minutes is a, is a while to just go yeah. get some food. Yeah. It probably had to do with maybe him trying to cool off because he was upset. Like maybe he drove around a little bit first yeah, and then got it. I think so. So by the time he had returned home with his food, he was calm and ready to go to bed with his wife. But when he got up to the front door, he noticed it was open. He ran inside yelling Diana's name, unsure of what had happened while he was gone. He heard his wife before he saw her. It sounded like she was snoring loudly in the bedroom but he knew his wife didn't snore. Kevin ran inside, and he almost fell backwards when he saw her. It looked like she had been shot in the head. Blood covered the headboard and the wall behind her, and it pooled beneath the bottom of her head. The snoring sound had been coming from her nose. She was trying to breathe, but all of her air passages were filled with blood. So she was kind of almost like suffocating in her own blood. Yeah. Oh my god. Kevin ran to the other side of the bed where the phone was, and he called 911. Diana was still alive, and he needed to get police and an ambulance there as soon as possible. On the phone with the operator, Kevin said that he needed police and an ambulance as soon as possible. His wife had been shot, and she was nine and a half weeks pregnant. They needed to hurry. Luckily, police officers were on patrol in the area, and they were able to arrive pretty quickly. When they arrive at the house, the front door was still open, and they made their way to the bedroom where they heard sobbing. They approached and asked Kevin to step away from Diana and identify himself. They said that he was completely distraught, but almost like in shock. Like he couldn't even listen to directions from them because he didn't know what was going on. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, you're probably tuning out every single thing around you. And you're just so fixated on on your wife in front of you. I mean, how could you? You know what I mean? And the fact that she's nine and a half months pregnant. Yeah. I mean, you're not dealing with just your wife here. You're dealing with your unborn child as well. So this is like the worst case possible. Yes. But Kevin did listen and he stepped back from the officers after he identified himself. And the officers heard the same strained breathing coming from the very visibly pregnant woman. The officer called in on the radio that they would need that ambulance to get there as soon as possible. The police at the scene tried to keep a frantic Kevin away from his wife because, as always, they were considering him a suspect and they wanted to separate him from the victim. Just in case, you know, if there's like removal of evidence or things like that. Right. 
When the paramedic arrived at the scene, Diana was moved to a stretcher. They realized quickly that she had not been shot. Instead, she had been struck in the head with a blunt object. So the reason why they thought she had been shot was because she was hit with this blunt object directly on her forehead. And the hole in her forehead was two inches in diameter. And there was brain matter and shattered skull. I mean, I'm pretty sure that that is actually one of the hardest places on your skull. Like your forehead's the to top. The, yeah, I mean, that's incredibly difficult. It's the hardest part of your, your actual skull. Yeah, this, this case and all the other cases of the bedroom basher, they said that the force that it would have taken to um, land these blows would have been somewhere, would have to have been somewhere between two and 400 like pounds of pressure. Oh, yeah. Tremendous but, force. But I almost feel like that can be very easily done if you were swinging it like you were swinging a baseball bat. Right, you right. You know what I mean? That's true. So she was loaded into the ambulance and rushed to the hospital. Kevin insisted on going with her, but the police would not allow it. They had to physically hold him back from climbing into the vehicle. I mean, it would be really hard to not go with your wife when something like that took place. Right, exactly. And, and once again, because also you have your kid that you're worried about too. Right, most likely the baby's probably going to be born right. sooner rather than later. So of course you want to be there. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't, that doesn't really throw up any red flags or anything. I mean, the guy wants to be with his wife and unborn child. Yeah, all in all, it seems pretty normal. The only thing that I think is a little strange um, behavior-wise coming from Kevin is the fact that your wife is nine and a half months pregnant and because of a fight, you decided to drive off when she could have went into labor literally at any second. Yeah, it's true. And any amount of stress or aggravation could have triggered a, a, a labor. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the only thing that calmed Kevin down was when police said that they needed his statement as quickly as possible so that they could get the story and evidence from him so he could basically be cleared as a suspect and he would be free to spend all of his time at the hospital with his wife and potentially his daughter yeah you know seems fair enough right so while he was being questioned the detectives at the scene asked him if he would be willing to give a blood sample and kevin agreed now don't forget this is 1979 so the only thing that could be determined at crime scenes and potential suspects would be blood type that's as far as we can get so far okay As he gave the sample, he told the detective that he and his wife had had sex earlier that night because they thought that maybe it would have induced labor, but they were wrong. Then they watched a movie and they got into a fight as soon as the movie ended. He had gone out to get food and was gone for about 40 minutes. He recalled that when he left, he didn't lock the front door. And before he got into his car, he saw a man loitering around the apartment complex. It seemed as if he owned the black van that he was standing near because he kept going into the back of the van, which doors were left open. He showed the detectives the bag of food that he had brought along with him, and the food was still warm, and there was a a receipt that had a timestamp, and it was for the -the jack-in-the-box that was three miles away. So everything was seeming to like match up pretty well for Kevin, except for like that generic, oh, I saw a guy in a black van, you know, that seemed a little like too obvious and convenient for the police to hear. Yeah, I think right now everything seems a little too convenient. Having the the receipt, the food in hand, it's like, 
I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not jumping to conclusions. I'm just saying that I think it's that seems odd that it's super convenient. I saw somebody there. I have a receipt. You know, I I can prove my whereabouts. It's a little 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 weird. A little shady. A little too like clean. The corners are a little too clean. Yeah. So finally, the detectives told them that they had all they would need for the time being, and that Kevin could go be with his wife at the hospital. He rushed to get there as quickly as he could. And from the waiting room, he called his and Diana's family to let them know what had happened. Back at the hospital, the doctors worked to save Diana and her unborn baby girl. It was clear why Kevin and even the first officers at the scene thought she had been shot. Diana had a very large wound in the middle of her forehead that was caused by a brutal blunt force trauma. She suffered from severe blood loss, a shattered skull, and a traumatic brain injury. She and the baby were both stable after hours of work. At this point, Diana was breathing on her own, and there were signs of brain activity. All really positive things. She was in a semi-comatose state, and surgery would be needed on her head wound, and um, that was because there was some swelling in her brain, so they would need to relieve the pressure, but they were unable to perform that surgery until a C-section was to be done but they had to wait on the C-section for the mother and the baby to be stable for a certain amount of time. Okay. I mean, this is crazy that this baby is just not, just doesn't want to, like, come out. (laughs) Yeah, well, the C-section's planned for the following day, but you're right. This baby's like, I really don't want to leave. I'm I'm hanging in there. I get it, though. There's five serial killers on the loose. Yeah, gotta stay inside. (laughs) So the police indicated to the paramedics and the doctors that they suspected sexual assault took place because she was found on her bed. So they just said that a rape kit should be performed. And that's standard um, when a victim is found on her bed. Um, The way she was positioned was sexually suggestive, like with her legs spread apart. So it was all precautionary. The test did point to sexual assault. There were signs of trauma to her vaginal area as well as semen found in her body. However, now things are complicated because Kevin also told police that they had had sex that night as well. I could see where it gets a little complicated because of the time too. I'm sure they can't figure it out, right? Right, unless the only thing at this point in 1979 that would allow them to determine if there were two different types of semen samples in her body would be if one of them was what we call a secretor and the other was a non-secretor. But if both samples were non-secretors, they wouldn't be able to tell who was whose because when a semen sample is considered a secretor, it just means that your blood type can be determined by your bodily fluids. So your blood type could be determined through your semen. Okay. So it, it's complicated, but it all depends on so many things. And then, like, be, if the samples are joined, they're kind of corrupted, so I don't know how much it would stand up in court. You know what I'm yeah. saying? especially not in 1979. No. So the minds of the detectives working the case went immediately to the fact that this was the work of the bedroom basher. It was his victimology as well as his MO. A woman alone in a ground-level apartment attacked with a blunt force object and raped in her bedroom. Once another victim of the bedroom basher was established, Diana, a task force was formed quickly. 
Maybe this case would be the one that finally helped them catch the man that they were after. They also prayed for a recovery, because Diana was different from past victims. None of the other victims had survived their attacks, and if she woke up, she could potentially give them a sketch of what this guy looked like. Right, it's a lot different than in past victims, so this is important. This is really important. Kevin and Diana's family stayed throughout the night, waiting for her to possibly wake up. But around 10 a.m. the following morning, as her mother sat by her bedside and the rest of the family was in the wing's waiting room, one of the monitors crashed. This caused a massive commotion. Kevin and the rest of the family ran in. They were followed quickly by seven nurses and two doctors. The family was told that they would need to leave. Diana was being rushed to surgery. Within half an hour, a doctor came out to the waiting room and told the family that the crashing of the machine they heard was the baby being in distress. An emergency C-section had to be performed. Diana was stable, but unfortunately the baby did not survive. Because the C-section had been performed, the doctors were going to go ahead and bring her into surgery because the pressure on her brain from the depression fracture needed to be relieved. That's some pretty heavy news that that family heard that day. Yeah, yeah, because you want to have faith and hope that whatever she's going through right now, which is a lot, you know, physically and mentally, I'm sure, like all these things that are going on, you want some light, some hope to come out of it. You want that baby to survive, you know? Yeah, and I think one thing that made the family feel confident in the survival of the unborn baby was the fact that the baby was full term and then some. So you would think that maybe the baby would be able to survive it a little bit better than, say, if she was only six months pregnant. But unfortunately, what had happened was there was a severe lack of oxygen that the baby had. So that led to the stillborn birth. I mean, I couldn't imagine hearing that news that not only is your daughter grandchild not alive any longer, like, wasn't even able to breathe on this earth right like that's so traumatizing but now diana's gonna have to go in for brain surgery and there's a strong possibility that she might not even pull through this and that if she does she could have severe brain damage for the rest of her life yeah i mean we're talking about like there's the quality of life you can't expect it to be great after this you know what i mean like you, you know there's so much loss here the family's suffering all at one time it's It's a lot to handle. It really is. And the doctors tried to be really adamant about telling the family, like not having them get their hopes up. Like there's some, there's going to be some consequences to this attack when it comes to Diana's brain activity. Right. Diana's surgery lasted three hours. She was stabilized and breathing on her own again. The doctors told the devastated family that Diana would possibly need physical therapy for the rest of her life, but there were still no guarantees that there would ever be a full recovery. Again, she was in a semi-comatose state. The doctor called the detectives and let them know that the case they were investigating was now a homicide. The task force set up to take down the serial killer went into overdrive, and they re-interviewed all of those involved in the other cases again. Police also chose to use the media. Now, kind of like we said before, law enforcement, whether it's federal or local or state, they choose not to warn the public 
because they don't want to feed in to what these killers want, but they also don't want to panic the public. But in the late 1970s, 80s, the tactic was, let's warn people. Right. And you would think that that would be great, but not with these people. (laughs) Yeah. Especially because there's so many killers out there on the loose. This is now the fourth one they're introducing to the Southern California area alone. Uh, Yeah, at this rate, I mean, you got all these killers running around. No one's going to even want to live there. And panic is just what happened when the police informed the media that they believed that Diana was just another victim of the bedroom basher. Like we said in the intro, gun sales went through the roof and women, especially those who lived in ground level apartments, chose to never be alone. The task force working the case believed that all of the crimes of the bedroom basher were crimes of opportunity rather than him being the kind of stalker murderer where like he he didn't really like plan out his victims ahead of time he kind of just looked for opportunities and then struck so what they did was they began canvassing apartment complexes around the city of tustin there were several residents of diana's complex and other complexes around it that stated that they remembered seeing a white man with very curly dark hair they either said he looked suspicious or creepy So police in Tustin and all the neighboring towns were instructed to conduct drive-bys of all apartment complexes after 10 p.m. and throughout the night. If they were to see a white man with curly dark hair, he was to be brought in for questioning. Over the next week, many men had been brought in for questioning, but none of them were ever investigated further than just initial questioning because it just wasn't those guys. Not to mention, it's it's not enough detail to really go on. I mean, you have, there was tons of white people with dark curly hair. So it's just like, it, it's a, not a lot to go on, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think they were just pretty desperate at this point, grasping at straws. Yeah. After her brain surgery, Diana's family sat by her bedside at all times of the day and night for weeks afterward. After her brain surgery, Diana's family sat by her bedside at all times of the day and night. Finally, six days after the surgery, Diana woke up. Everyone was so excited, but the doctor cautioned them not to overwhelm her. They found out quickly that Diana was unable to talk to them. The doctor said currently it was like she had the mentality of a six-year-old and that her functionality would come back, but it would be slow and that they couldn't guarantee what would and would not be recovered. After three weeks of a very difficult physical and occupational therapy, Diana was able to leave the hospital. Because Kevin had to return to work, the couple moved in with Diana's parents so that her mother and father could aid in the -the around-the-clock help that Diana would need. The one direction that the doctors gave Diana's family was that they should not try and fill in the blanks for her. They should allow her to remember things on her own. At this point, she was extremely susceptible to suggestion. And if they implied even the smallest thing, Diana would think it was a fact. So the family was very careful not to do so. And they help her with everything she needs. Both of her parents and Kevin take care of everything that Diana needs. And and they work hard to slowly nurse her back to health. Diana started with her outpatient physical therapy appointments as soon as she left the hospital. Diana liked her physical therapist very much. She always talked to her throughout the session, and it put Diana at ease. 
meaning that like the therapist kind of like talked her through everything. Diana still has the um, inability to talk at this time. Well, during one particular session, about three weeks into her treatment, so six weeks from the attack, the therapist was just explaining how awful she felt for the poor woman and that she hoped whoever had done this was caught as soon as possible. If you've remembered anything, that would be wonderful, she said. Do you know who did it? And I will say that I think this is inappropriate for the physical therapist to be asking because she's susceptible to suggestion, just like the doctor said. So the physical therapist should know that and kind of shouldn't be playing detective here. Yeah, it is a little odd um, to ask those questions. I mean, because you're trying to rehabilitate somebody and make them like get the best version of themselves. Ever since what happened to her, you want the best for her. So to kind of like set her back and make her like think of that, it's it's not right. I don't agree with that. No, I completely agree with you. It's like, I'm going to teach you how to walk again, but let's talk about what happened to you. Like, I, I don't think that's appropriate. Yeah. I mean, you need to be encouraged, supported, and, you know, pretty much held by the hand, regardless of any t- sort of physical therapy, because you're dealing with issues that you're trying to overcome, you know, so... Not a good move. Well, Diana did reply to her. She nodded as if she knew who had attacked her. And then she pointed to her wedding ring. Wow. Really? Yep. Okay. This is getting good now. I like this. Let's keep going. (laughs) (laughs) So when her mother arrived to pick up Diana, the physical therapist told her what she thought Diana had been trying to let her know during the appointment that Kevin was the one who had attacked her. Diana's mother asked the woman again. Diana, she said, was it Kevin who hurt you? And Diana nodded her head, yes. The two drove right to the police station and talked to the detective that was in charge of Diana's case. He was also a member of the Bedroom Basher Task Force. The detectives watched as Diana confirmed that she believed it was her husband who had attacked her and raped her that night. They were in disbelief. This could mean so many things. Was Kevin the bedroom basher? Or had he taken advantage of the man's M.O. in order to try and hurt his wife? They told Diana and her mother not to talk about their suspicions to anyone. Don't alert Kevin. What they wanted to do was investigate Kevin without him knowing it. Right, because you don't want anybody to get spooked. If Kevin gets spooked, he could, he could, I mean, if he ran away, I mean, then it's a clear indication that he's guilty, but you get what I'm saying. They want it un, unfiltered. They just want to get what they can on him without any, like, you know, ropes to jump over or anything. So th- this is pretty good. This is, uh, well, this is thanks, interesting. You know. I like what you're doing here. When the DALOs got home, of course, they told Diana's father, but the immediate family did not tell anyone else. However... As you can all imagine, it was extremely uncomfortable living in that home. Think about that dynamic. Diana refused to allow Kevin to help her in any way, and her parents took over full-time care. This upset Kevin, who had been there every step of the way for his wife, but his in-laws assured him that this was maybe just their daughter probably being frustrated but inside their skin crawls, knowing that this man was staying under their roof and sleeping in the same bed as their daughter, even though he had attacked her. That is actually incredible. I mean, the dynamic right there in that house. I mean, that father must just want to, like, kill that guy. Kill him. Kill him. (laughs) You know? I mean, because if what we're saying is correct, or I should say, 
you know, what Diana is saying is true. This is mind-blowing. It's insane. Yeah, not only did he attack their daughter, but is responsible for the death of their, their first grandchild. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot on this guy's hands, you know, if, yeah. if he is indeed guilty. So investigators hit the ground running with this accusation. Had Kevin Green, who seemed like the perfect husband, the man that had been cooperative and given them a blood sample, been the one who committed the crime or crimes? They decided the best thing they could do is interview those in Kevin's life and get a better picture about the man and the relationship that he had with his wife. Now, the reason these interviews were not conducted to begin with was because Kevin had been cleared because of his alibi. Well, it was a shame that those interviews weren't conducted because investigators learned some interesting things by talking to Kevin's friends, co-workers, and neighbors. Detectives learned that Kevin and Diana had a bit of a heated relationship. Very passionate, others said. The couple fought loud and often. Neighbors heard them always arguing. And in fact, they heard them arguing the night of the attack. And it had sounded like things got physical. Like it seemed they had in the past as well. They also learned that Kevin had been complaining to friends and co-workers that he had been extremely frustrated lately because in her 8th and ninth month of pregnancy, Diana did not want to have sex with Kevin any longer because it was too uncomfortable for her. He was of the belief that she should have sex with him whenever he wanted. Okay, so that could explain the, the sexual assault and all of the other injuries that she suffered. But I, I find this interesting because now that we're starting to get a bigger the bigger picture here, it makes sense that he said, "Oh, well, the night before, you know, I had sex with her," and mm-hmm. and um, it's almost like it's he knows that by saying what he said, it gets him out of being responsible, right? You know, the fast food, you know, leaving in the first place, going to get the fast food, having the receipt, um, saying I had sex with her, you know, we had sex the night before. No, the same night. Oh, I'm sorry, the same night. All these things, right, make him appear like he's not guilty. Right. Right? And then also saying, hey, you need a blood sample? No problem. I got you. Right? That would also make people less suspicious of him. So he he thinks that, like, he's totally good. Right. But now everything's starting, like, right now, as we're going over this, it makes sense that this Mm -hmm. is where it might lead. So... I also think something that's interesting and probably is going through the mind of investigators at this point, if this man has become what he explained to his friends and co-workers as being sexually frustrated, maybe that is why the sexual assaults of the other women have started taking place within the past few months, because his pregnant wife has chosen to withhold sex in his eyes. I think it's a little... That, that sounds great. I'm not going to dismiss you. But I have to, I have to hear more to know, like to really get to that part, okay. because right now I'm thinking that he's taking advantage of the situation of somebody else going out there and doing those things. That's where I'm at okay. right now. I can't say for sure yet. So you think he tried to make the crime, his wife's crime scene, look like it was the bedroom basher? Correct, because okay. in the heat of the moment, it happened, and now he's trying to cover his tracks. But that. Well, no, because what you're saying indicates premeditation. Actually, you're right. It does. Because then it would give him an avenue to not be caught. So, yeah, you're right. 
So he was I, frustrated, yeah. like, I want out of this marriage, too. Don't Correct. forget, it's his second, second marriage. Yeah. So actually, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not thinking 100% no, so clearly I am here. here to support you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but, you know, that's where I'm headed. I, I don't have enough yet for me to be like, yeah, no, he is the guy that is doing all of it. Right. So. Well, the lab results from the rape kit also come back. In the rape kit, semen was taken from the vaginal canal, and there was also blood and skin samples that were removed from the victim's fingernails. They had come back as a match for the blood that Kevin had voluntarily given police. Now, because this was 1979, the testing was very different than it is today. What was determined was that the blood sample that was taken from Kevin and the blood sample that was taken from Diana's fingernails and the semen, because the semen that was found in her was the secretor type, so the semen, Kevin's blood, and the blood beneath Diana's fingernails were all the same blood type. Okay. So now we would have to suggest that he, that she fought back and that he has some sort of injury somewhere on him for there to be blood underneath her nails. So it can't be, it has to be something that's covered by clothing. No, I complete. I agree with that. There has to be an injury somewhere. But also, don't forget that Kevin's story is that they also got into a fight that night. So if, like the neighbor said, it did get physical... Could the blood under her fingernails be from that physical fight that they had? It's just there's yeah. a lot of possibilities here. But then it also kind of shows you that an altercation with them could get physical. Because it has in the past. Right. And this could have just yeah. been an escalation. Right. So the theory the police are working on, and the only one that makes sense with the receipt from the jack-in-the-box, was that the attack had taken place first. Kevin being frustrated that Diana maybe wouldn't have sex with him, attacked her, raped her, then left and went to a fast food place. Or possibly raped her, then attacked her. We don't know the order in which that took place. But then he left for the fast food place, returned with the receipt, and then called 911 so he would have an alibi. I agree. Because it's all... It, it, it's, it can't line up so perfectly the way that it was given in the beginning of the of, of the story, of, of beginning of this case. So right. I agree. The detectives asked Diana and her mother to come back to the station, and they asked again if she still believed that Kevin was the person that attacked her that night. She confirmed that he was. They asked her if he had unconsensual sex with her that night, and she said that they had. The lead detective told Diana and her mother that they would not have to continue faking things with Kevin. Once they had received the lab reports, they had issued an arrest warrant and they were going to arrest Kevin later that day. Kevin Green was stopped by police while he was shopping at a local convenience store after work. They weren't allowed to go on base and arrest him. An officer handcuffed him and asked him to walk outside. He was shocked to see that there were several police cars waiting for him. The media went wild with this case. A Marine beat his wife almost to death raped her, and in the process caused the death of their unborn child. Kevin Green was public enemy number one in Southern California. His trial began 10 months after the arrest had taken place, and Diana was the star witness that testified against her husband. There were also a lot of um, testimonies from like doctors saying that Diana was capable of doing this testimony, but the highlight was obviously her testimony. Diana, who was still clearly 
physically and emotionally recovering from her attack, was asked if her husband was in the room, and she pointed at Kevin Green. She was then asked if her attacker was in the room, and she again pointed at Kevin Green. This was extremely damning for Kevin, and Diana's physical state and courage weighed heavily on the minds and hearts of the jury. They took only three hours to convict Kevin Green. He was guilty of second-degree murder for the death of his unborn child and for the attempted murder of his wife. On November 7, 1980, he was sentenced to 15 years to life, meaning that he would be eligible for parole in six years. However, it was up to the parole board for his time release. So basically given a life sentence. Right. Now he got now he got that jail time, but now he's a marine. Does he is it possible for him to be imprisoned from like by the Marine, uh, Marine Corps? Corps? He could be, but a second trial would have to take place. So does that mean that it might not ha- did, did it happen here? No, it didn't because he had been Found guilty by civil court. Okay, so what you're by saying civilians is court. if so the civilian court did not find him guilty, then the Marine Corps could have, have a trial him. and try him again. 100%. Okay, because we can't charge him. We can't try to that trial again. That actually took place yeah. in another case mm-hmm. where um, a man, and his name is escaping me right now, but a man had attacked um, a woman, killed her, and then her, her daughter was left in the house. And he had been found guilty in, by the state of North Carolina. But then the army, I believe, retried him and he was found guilty. I do. I know what you're talking. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. That's kind of why I brought it up. Because yeah. I could see that being something that could have happened here if he wasn't found guilty. Yeah. So maybe he's, <laughs> I don't want to say lucky, but I mean, but you know what I mean? Like, I mean, he could have, it could have been worse there. Could have most been twice. And the rules are a little different too. Like the laws are different. Yes, it's not beyond a reasonable doubt, the law, so that does change. So the police, along with Diana's family, make the statement that they believe justice had been served and that they no longer wanted to connect the case with the other cases of the bedroom basher. However, after weeks went by, the local media made a connection. As soon as Kevin Green had been arrested, the bedroom basher attacks had also stopped. There were two theories here. First, that maybe Kevin Green was just sick and that he was committing those crimes because his wife had first become pregnant and then no longer wanted to have sex with him. Oftentimes, these serial killers, what starts their offenses is a stressor and Kevin's wife being pregnant and marital problems is definitely a stressor, especially when he's a man that And this is what all of his friends said, that he was a man that believed that his wife was supposed to have sex with him whenever he wanted. Okay. The other theory would be that Diana was the main target of Kevin. Now, this is if he's the bedroom basher. That the other crimes were committed as a distraction to throw the police off. For example, if only Diana was murdered, he, of course, would be the only suspect. However, if other women were murdered and or attacked in a similar fashion, then the attention is on the serial killer and not the husband. It's kind of like when we were watching Hannibal, remember? Like, that's the golden ticket. Right. Like, you're going to have other chocolate bars, but, like, that's the one that matters to him. No, I, I understand what you're saying. Let me just say this. Just, just to throw it out there, um, and I don't feel like it's tinfoil hat theory either. I, I think it's something that could possibly be something... Could it be that 
there is someone out there that is committing these rapes and murders and catches wind that somebody else killed their or tried to kill their wife in a similar fashion and then it gave them the, the ability to like back out meaning like Kevin Green is the one that like like they think that he's the one that did it and they're like it's a possibility, so it's a way for them to back out and stop They completely. want someone else to take the fall for their Exactly, crimes. and just stop. Well, that theory would only be true if the person that was committing these crimes was able to control his impulses. That's true, but I'm sure there and usually, are. usually, that's not that easy. Right. I mean, we do have serial killers who have had, who have stopped, maybe, or like had lulls like BTK, or, you know... The Golden State Killer, but because there's people there, there have been murder. Uh, there have been serial killers that have literally lived in a neighborhood. No one would ever suspect anything, and right. it's totally like normal. So you never know. And I don't want to confuse the audience, but I just you never know. That could be something. Well, it just seems like the mo of this guy is that he was extremely impulsive, and these were all crimes of opportunity. So it's not the well-planned-out serial killer, this guy. So I don't think he's the one that would be able to have complete control of his emotions and his urges, if that makes sense. No, you're right. When you say it like that, I guess you're right, because you would need to try to keep, you know, calmer heads, you know, do prevail. So if he was trying to... Definitely doesn't have one of those. Right, no, that's what I'm saying. So maybe you are right now. I guess my my little theory goes out the window there. No, it's okay. But, hey. Sorry. No, hey, no. I sunk your battleship. No, it's... (laughs) Well, right after the sentencing of Kevin Green, Diana asked for a divorce. He did not contest it. Good call. Yeah. Kevin did not have an easy time in prison. He was considered a baby killer and was lumped in with the worst of the worst amongst the ranks of prisoners. Because of this, at first he was ostracized and the victim of many physical attacks. His family stated that there were many dark times for Kevin, who often thought of suicide. Now this brings us to 1995, 15 years after his conviction. Diana and her family maintained that Kevin was the man who had committed the attack in September of 1979, whereas Kevin still denied that he had anything to do with it. In fact, within the span of those 15 years, Kevin had been up for parole four times. At that point, he was a model prisoner. He never got in trouble and earned the respect of prisoners and prison staff. Because he could type, he got a job in the main office of the prison, typing disciplinary reports. However, he had been denied parole all four times, and this is because he refused to admit that he had been the one to attack his wife. He was told by everyone, including those who worked in the prison, that he would most likely have gotten parole if he would admit to the crime and explain that he was remorseful, and the board agreed. The fact that Kevin had not admitted guilt proved that he was not rehabilitated, which was why he never received parole. But still, Kevin refused to admit that he had ever committed the crime or any of the other crimes that were associated with the bedroom basher. Although he had not been formally charged with those crimes, most believe that he was responsible for all five attacks. I mean, how else could you explain that they all stopped after his arrest? Since his incarceration, the advancement in DNA technology had been made, and Kevin had been asking for a retesting of his blood and the evidence collected from Diana's rape kit. However, because he lacked the funds for the retesting, he was unable to have his requests performed. 
Kevin was told that a visit was requested with him by a district attorney from the Santa Ana area. Confused, Kevin agreed. When the man sat down with him, there were a few things that he wanted to tell him. One of his detectives and himself had been assigned to work cold cases. Because of the new DNA technology, the prosecutor's office believed that they would be able to clear a lot of old cases, especially because a statewide database had been created from prisoners and felons. The two men had been assigned the case of Deborah Kennedy. Deborah had also lived in Tustin in the fall of 1979, and one week after Diana had been attacked, the 24-year-old Deborah had been too. It was a brutal crime scene. She lived in a floor apartment on Boleyn Circle with her sister, who left with a female friend to go to Las Vegas on October 6th. When the two women returned, they found the door unlocked. They called for Deborah, but she did not answer. They ran to her bedroom, where the woman was found lying on the floor. Blood thickly pooled around her entire body. It appeared there was a very large wound to her head. Deborah was left in an exaggerated spread eagle position. Her dressing gown was completely open. It was clear that semen was present in her pelvic area and on the inside of her thigh. Her sister and sister's friends were in hysterics when they called the police. It was clear that Deborah had been murdered and raped. This attack took place only one mile away from where Kevin had lived, and this is when before he had been arrested while his wife was still in the hospital and was considered to be a part of the bedroom basher attacks that Kevin was believed to have been responsible for. The semen that had been found on Deborah Kennedy had been retested, simply because it was the first rape kit that had been found from the bedroom basher series. The sample that was taken from the victim had been transferred onto slides and frozen long ago to preserve them. As soon as the DA had told him the results came back with a hit, he thought this was it. The time had come when they were going to charge him for the other crimes, but that's not what the man said. The results came back with a hit, but it was not his blood they matched with. They matched with a man who was also in prison. His name was Gerald Parker. And not only had Gerald Parker's DNA matched the sample from the Kennedy crime, but also the three other attacks that took place in Costa Mesa, a town that was about 10 minutes away from Tustin. Parker was currently in prison for the kidnapping and sexual assault of a 13-year-old girl from Tustin, California. But he was due to be released in one week's time. That's that's insane. So he... Okay. So Kevin Green did not... We, so we know for a fact now that he did not have any involvement with the other women that were sexually assaulted and murdered, right? In the Bedroom Basher series. In the series. Bedroom Basher series. But that does not mean, though, that he didn't do that to his wife. Yes, that ha- that DNA has not been tested yet. Because it's completely separate. It, the only thing that's similar here is just the fashion in which they were, you know, sexually assaulted and, 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 and beaten. Correct. So, I mean, this is still up in the air, I guess. Well, that's why the DA asked Kevin if he would be willing to give a blood sample to possibly clear him from the attack of his wife and to definitely clear him from the other Bedroom Basher series. Upon hearing the request, Kevin immediately rolled up his sleeves and told the DA he could take anything he wanted because he had been asking for this retesting for six years at this point since DNA had become a thing. Now, Gerald Parker was a very interesting character. 
He was a habitual drug user and had been in and out of prison several times. However, during 1979, Parker was also in the Marine Corps, stationed at the same base as Kevin Green had been. He also had a black van registered to him at the time. So maybe he did, Kevin Green did see something then. Maybe Kevin Green's ridiculously um, generic alibi and what he had seen was maybe true. Do we know what the results were from his blood sample? Well, not yet. First, before they're going to get the results back from Kevin Green's blood sample, the DA and the detective in charge of the Kennedy cold case are going to interview Gerald Parker. They told him that that he had been formally charged with the suspicion of murder and sexual assault in the Kennedy cold case and with aggravated sexual assault in the three additional Costa Mesa cases. Parker at first was stoic. Then they decided that they would mention the Green case. You, the detective told Parker, are responsible for the loss of the Green family's baby daughter. You permanently, mentally, and physically compromised Diana Green, and you destroyed their family. Kevin Green has spent 15 years in prison, but you did the crime. Parker responded that he had heard that a fellow Marine had been arrested for that crime, and it was apparent that this bothered him. The two men remembered that Parker's file said that Parker had stated once in an interview when he had been arrested years prior, when he had been arrested 20 years prior, that he believed that the Marines had been the only good thing that happened in his life. So the detective tried to appeal to that sense of pride and brotherhood within him. I know that you'll do the right thing, Parker. I know that you would never let another Marine go down for this. You're going to step up and explain what really happened that night because you are loyal to the Marines. You're going to do what's right, he kept repeating to Parker. Parker admitted it when he finally said to the detective, there's another man sitting in jail for the murder I committed. That's crazy. And weeks later, the DNA test would come back and confirm that was Parker. See, this is a great example of, I think this whole case, right? The Kevin Green thing. I guess it's just one of those things where, you know, you do have a lot of falsely accused people sitting in jail. You know, because, like, think about that for a second. If I'm, you know, I'm listening to this story and and right away it seems too good to be, you know, know, too good to be true. Too obvious. Or too obvious. Um, Yeah, I kind of have to eat my words here because, you know what, I was wrong, you know. But, you know what, so is the justice system sometimes. Right. And And maybe maybe more than sometimes, but... You know, it's hard, though, I think, too, especially in the time period where these murders were taking place. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to make excuses, but, I mean, it's 1979, and, and science is not where science is in 1995, for example, or 2020. So, you know, it, it, it would be, he's not as, as believable in 1979, you know what I mean? It, it, it took, as he is now. Exactly, exactly. Like, it took till you know, 1995 to maybe spin the story the right way so wow that's that's pretty shocking well parker confessed not just to what happened to diana green but what he had done to five other women one of which the detective and the da knew nothing about but he went in order of the crimes he committed and finally the police received answers based on parker's confession and the transcript from people versus parker the following has taken place. 
And guys, these attacks are pretty graphic, so I just want to forewarn you before we begin. Parker stated that on the nights of the attacks, he would drink himself into a drunken stupor, and then he would wander around Tustin and the surrounding areas, peeking into windows and trying to find opportunities to prey on women. The first victim was Sandra K. Fry. Sandra was 17 years old and had just recently moved into the Viking apartment complex in Anaheim, California, on South Knot Avenue. She shared a two-bedroom apartment with another woman, and on December 1, 1978, Sandra was alone in her apartment. Parker stated that he had been driving his van when he noticed the apartment complex. It was near Buena Park. He had to climb a chain-link fence at the back of the complex to gain entry. He said he passed three or four other apartments that either had their shades drawn or their lights out. But then he happened upon apartment H2, Sandra's apartment. He saw that the lights were on and that he heard music coming from one of the open windows. Upon further inspection, he found that one of the bedroom windows, Sandra's roommate's window, had its screen off and was left unlocked. He peeked through the open living room window and saw Sandra listening to music and sitting at the kitchen table. She was talking on the phone. She appeared to be alone and was just over 100 pounds. So Parker believed that she would be an easy victim. After watching her for about a minute, he climbed through the open bedroom window. He walked out of the bedroom and into the living room. He hid by the stereo in the shadows and listened to the girl talking on the phone, her back towards him. Eventually, she hung up the phone but remained seated at the kitchen table. He had brought a two-by-four with him and held it in his hands as he waited a few minutes. Finally, he approached the 17-year-old girl. At the last second, she turned around, and Parker hit her in the face with a two-by-four. Now, Parker told police and testified during trial that he hit Sandra twice, first in the face and then the back of the head, and that there were no exchanges between the two of them because Sandra was immediately rendered unconscious from the initial blows to her head. He said that he grabbed her by her breasts and dragged her into the bedroom. However, the crime scene told a different story. There were signs of a struggle in the living room, as there was broken glass and candy from the broken candy dish all over the floor, and the injuries on her body were consistent with that of a struggle. It was determined that she had been unconscious once the second blow was rendered to her temple. Parker laid Sandra down on the bed, first on her stomach, and then turned her around, so she was lying on her back. She was sideways on the bed. He took off his pants and underwear and then ripped Sandra's clothes from her. Parker spread her legs, but was unable to get an erection. So he masturbated and ejaculated on her after a few minutes. He put his pants back on and grabbed the two by four and left through the roommate's window, the same one he had entered through. Parker made a comment that her breathing had been unlike the others were later. It was just a gurgling, but he didn't know that this meant, like he, he was unsure of what this meant because this was his first crime. So he chose to just leave. But he said that it sounded like the breathing was only reaching halfway down her lungs, to put it in his own words, as to what he said it sounded like. Her head at this point was hanging off the edge of the bed. I mean, I, I do believe that his intentions were, were for her to die. Oh, yeah. He tried, I mean, he tried sure. to make it sound like he thought she was still alive. So he left, but I don't believe that. 
So at around 11 p.m. the night, Sandra's roommate... So at around 11 p.m. that night, Sandra's roommate returned. She had to knock on the door because Sandra was the only one with the key. She finally saw two friends, two males driving by, and she flagged them down. She asked one of them to climb through her window so he could let her in. They agreed. The one male climbed through the roommate's window and walked directly to the front door. Because the lights were out, he did not notice the struggle that had occurred. The two males left and the roommate entered her apartment. She went into Sandra's bedroom to see if she was sleeping, and she saw her head hanging from the bed, blood pooling on the floor, and she noticed that she was naked from the waist down. The roommate tried to wake Sandra up, but she could not, so she called 911 and kept trying to move the girl's bloody hair from her face. The first thing the girl thought was that Sandra had been beaten up. Sandra was reported dead on arrival at the hospital that she was taken to. An autopsy determined that she had contusions on the bridge of her nose, lacerations on her lip, bruises on her neck consistent with strangling, um, either by the use of fingers or an object. So maybe he had used the two by four to strangle her. It was also clear that she had been struck on the side of the head as her skull was indented and cracked. This blow would have taken great force and would have rendered her unconscious. Semen was found on the girl's inner thigh, and latent fingerprints were found in the bedroom that would later all be matched to Gerald Parker. The next victim Parker confessed to was 21-year-old Kimberly Rollins. She lived with a roommate in an apartment complex on Avocado Street in Costa Mesa. Her roommate left for a double date with her cousin and two men at around 7.30 p.m. At 11 p.m., the roommate's cousin and her date returned because she had forgotten her ID. The roommate and her date stayed and talked to Kimberly for about 30 minutes. The entire time the couple was talking to Kimberly, he was listening from outside the window. Eventually, the roommate's cousin and her date said that they were about to head back out just before midnight. Kimberly told them not to lock the door because she planned on going to bed and she knew that her roommate did not have a key. There's a lot of people not having double keys for their roommates, and I just feel like that's probably a really safe thing to have. Yeah, you probably should have I'm not victim-blaming at all, but I just find it strange that... That you don't have a spare key? Yeah. Or, like, your own set of key that you didn't lose? Yeah, I hear you. But maybe that's just the way they did things back then. Right. As the couple left, Parker lurked in the shadows. Knowing Kimberly was alone, he waited until she turned the lights off, and then he walked through the front door holding a two-by-four. She was sleeping when Parker entered her bedroom. He hit her with the two-by-four three to four times. After the first or second hit, Kimberly must have awoken, and she tried to fight back, as the nails on her pinky and ring finger were broken and had blood beneath them. She was eventually rendered unconscious after enduring a blow to the side of the head, which left a nine-inch fracture on her skull. Her robe was opened, and she was raped by Parker. Later, a medical examiner would find semen on the string of a tampon that was removed from her vaginal canal. When her roommate found her at 4.30 a.m., she thought Kimberly was dead and the killer was still in the apartment. So she fled and then made the call to 911. But when the paramedics arrived, she was still breathing. CPR was administered until the ambulance arrived. But unfortunately, it was too late for first responders to save her. The third victim was 31-year-old Marilyn K. Carlton. Her attack occurred in September of 1979. 
Marilyn lived in an apartment complex on the same street as Kimberly. She lived in her apartment with her nine-year-old son, Joey. After midnight on September 15th, 15 days only before Diana's attack, Parker entered Marilyn's apartment through an unlocked sliding glass door. She was sleeping in her bedroom. He hit her four times with the two-by-four and rendered her unconscious immediately, as there were no signs of a struggle indicated. As you can tell from these attacks, what's taking place is that his MO and what he was doing was adapting, and unfortunately you see that with serial killers is that um, they they try to, in their own minds, perfect each case, whereas um, before it was just one blow and then like an uh, a fight would ensue he later is going to attack them until they're unconscious and then try to perform the rape right yeah which just shows that he that's what he thinks that's what he deems necessary to not put like for anybody to put up any sort of fight right. and because of the proximity of all of these attacks you are seeing an escalation taking place i mean if you think about it marilyn carlton's attack was on september 15th Diana September 30th, and then we know the Kennedy case was on October 6th. I mean, so yeah. these are just rapidly taking place. And, of course, we know that leads to him kidnapping a 13-year-old girl. Okay, yeah. So Parker is going to, after he renders Marilyn unconscious, he tried to sexually assault her. And he's starting to take her clothes off when he heard her son, Joey, call out for his mother. Parker was startled by this, and he went to leave the apartment. But as he was trying to flee, he ran into nine-year-old Joey in the hallway. The boy asked the intruder what he had done to his mother. Parker moved the boy aside and ran out the sliding glass door that he entered from. That's so crazy. I know. Thank God he didn't touch that boy. The boy had called 911. This is like the bravest little boy ever. He called 911 when he couldn't wake up his mother. And when first responders arrived at the scene just before 3 a.m., he met them outside of the apartment and directed them where to go because he knew it was confusing. Aww. I know. When they arrived, the sliding glass door was still open, but the drapes to the door had been closed. The officer went into the bedroom and found Marilyn propped up against the bed and nightstand. She was wearing a short nightgown that had been pulled up to her waist. Her underwear was around her ankles. There were massive wounds to her head, and she was bleeding heavily. However, the officer could still hear her breathing. It was labored and forced, and her pulse was weak. The officer asked for a rushed ambulance. He lowered her on the ground to help with her breathing. Marilyn was brought to a hospital where, unfortunately, she was pronounced dead the following day at noon. The one thing that varied with Marilyn's attack was the fourth attack was of Diana Green. And the fourth victim was her unborn child. The court records recognized the name of the stillborn as Chantal Marie Green. That attack had taken place on September 30th. Parker admitted that around midnight, he had driven to a tasty freeze, which ended up being within walking distance from the Green's apartment complex. He had been casing the complex when he heard the arguing of the young couple. He watched Kevin leave the apartment stop, realize he couldn't lock the front door, and then leave anyway. Parker waited about 15 minutes and then walked in the front door. He remembered seeing marine memorabilia on the wall. 
and he said he walked right into Diana's bedroom and she bolted upright. He thought she recognized him for a second and then she laid back down. She laid back down because she was trying to get out of bed, but she couldn't because she was pregnant, so it was difficult. Before she could get back up, he hit her in the head. She was unconscious after the first blow. That blow caused a hole two inches in diameter on her forehead. Brain matter was exposed and there was a massive amounts of blood spatter on the wall. He stated that he knew she was pregnant, but he still attacked her and sexually assaulted her. And he admitted that he had ejaculated inside of her. It was revealed during Parker's trial that it took years for Diana to learn how to speak and spell again. And that even though at that point, 17 years had passed, she was still unable to comprehend speech if a person spoke too quickly. She had a delay in thought processing, which made socializing quite difficult. A medical examiner also stated that the unborn child died because of a lack of oxygen supply, which was a direct result of her inability to breathe and the attack. The fifth victim of Parker was Deborah Kennedy, which took place only a week after the attack of Diana. And Parker confirmed that he had committed her murder, as we discussed before. Then Parker told them about a sixth victim, and this one they didn't know about. This is Deborah Lynn Sr. Her attack took place on the night of October 20th, 1979. Deborah Lynn resided in an apartment on Maple Ave in Costa Mesa. Parker knew that Deborah Lynn and her roommate were out at a party, so he chose to park a good distance away from the apartment complex and walk to it. He pretended that he was a jogger and that he worked his way around the complex before making his way into their apartment, which he knew was empty. He was able to get in through an open window in the bathroom. Now, this window was actually five feet from the ground, but he was able to gain access through a high window by standing on gas meters and then sliding down the tile once inside. Parker recalled that Deborah Lynn came home alone. He watched her from the bathroom where he had cracked open the door. He noticed up close how young she was. She was 17, just like the first victim he confessed to. She made herself a drink and then fell asleep on the couch while drinking it. While she was asleep, he approached her and struck her on the head with a two-by-four. She was instantly knocked unconscious. He then proceeded to drag her into her bedroom, where he raped her and also ejaculated inside of her. Her roommate found her hours later and called the police. She was pronounced dead at the scene of the crime. After the murder of Deborah Lynn Sr., he kidnapped and sexually assaulted a 13-year-old girl from Tustin, who was eventually able to escape. He was serving time for those charges and was scheduled, like I said before, to be released in a week's time when the DNA from the bedroom basher cases turned up belonging to him. So that's why the bedroom basher cases stopped because he was also sentenced to prison time like just around the same time as Kevin Green was. I mean, what are the what are the odds of that actually happening, you know? Yeah, the Where, coincidence is insane. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. This whole case is like so everything fits so well that you almost just don't believe it. Yes. Yes. Well, after all these confessions which both the DA and the detective say they will never be able to forget. I promised you guys I gave you the abridged version. It's even worse in the court transcripts. They finally got to deliver some good news. 
They visit Kevin Green in his prison cell and they let him know that DNA evidence as well as a confession have exonerated him from the crimes that he was sentenced for. They promised that they would work as quickly as they could to get the sentence reversed. Within three days of the confession and DNA testing coming back, Kevin Green was released from prison. He was 37 years old and he had spent 15 years of his life in prison. The judge at his hearing told him that he had just woken up from a long nightmare and he's free to walk out of any door he chooses to. Parker was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder of the Green's daughter. He was sentenced to the death penalty. He is on death row at San Quentin. However, all death penalty cases have been halted by the governor of California as of March 2019, so his date will not come up anytime soon, despite him losing another appeal in 2017, which I believe was his last attempt at an appeal. Kevin Green moved back to his home state of Missouri after he was released from prison to be with his family. He eventually remarried, and in 1999, after Parker's conviction, the state of California compensated him for the time that he spent in prison. He was awarded $100 a day, which amounted to $620,000. Diana D'Aiello, Kevin's ex-wife, and the fifth victim of Parker as well as her family, do not believe that Kevin is innocent. They still believe that he committed the crime and that even if he did not physically do it, that they think that he asked Parker to do it. Kevin has stated that he wants Diana to know that he would have never hurt her and that he still does not forgive himself for not locking the front door. Yeah, I, I you know, that I think that's, you know, this, this is a very hard thing to go through for those parents you know, to see that this happened to their daughter and their un, you know, their unborn grandchild, I think it's, I think it'd be a little too hard. You know, once again, my whole view of this changed once we found out the DNA evidence because that's what's concrete. That's what's, you know, you can't change that. You can't change your genetic makeup. So the fact that his DNA, you know, was, you know, he was completely clear of everything. I don't know how you can still say that, though. I mean, unless there's proof that we don't know about or there's something that just hasn't been released to the public because I'm sure Parker would have said something that they, they, they okay, like, oh, maybe I, we knew each other in passing, but we never were close. We never communicated. I feel like something would have been exchanged. That, right, because he was yeah. very talkative in his confession. That's what I'm saying. So... That would mean that Parker said, you know what, I'm just going to take the rap for this. You know, like, oh, like, I yes, I did it, but I'm going to take the rap for um, he told me to do it. You know what I'm saying? Because that's, right. that's what the parents are saying is that he told Parker to go do it. So that means that Parker would, would have to say, yes, I did it. And no one, you know, no one told me to do it. It would also have to imply the fact that Kevin Green was aware that Gerald Parker was the bedroom basher to right. have to ask him to do it. Right. There's too many things would have had to happen for that to actually be the case. I think that the D.I.L.O. family and Diana in particular are victims of a horrific and horrendous crime that they should have never been, 
they should have never had to face. No, not at all. Especially at like the happiest time of your life when you think you're getting a daughter, a granddaughter, and your whole life gets completely turned around. And I think that they are so hurt and upset by that that they want to continue to believe what happened. I think that Diana was maybe um, possibly one of the biggest explanations of this was that her memory has been so clouded by her brain injury that maybe she, maybe her and Kevin did have a physical fight that night, right? So in her mind, she's remembering that physical fight and in her head that's being interpreted as the person who committed the second attack on her. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Or you know what? How about this? How about the fact that maybe the parents just have res- they resent him for leaving the door unlocked you yeah. know like yeah. it's it could be as simple as that like my daughter would not have been in this condition if you would have stayed if home you would have stayed her. home and protected her and lock or even locked the door you know so i i think there's just resentment there from the family and that's kind of uh you know that's kind of why they they're saying that and I guess I could understand that, but I don't think that's fair if he's been exonerated. And spent 15 years and in prison. Fi- and, well, yeah, and spent 15 years in prison. But, I mean, listen, like I said, DNA doesn't lie. So if he didn't, if his DNA isn't matching up, then he really did not do it. He physically did not yeah. do it. I think they were just really young and they probably shouldn't have gotten married so quickly. And they were fighting a lot. Yeah. So most likely their relationship would have ended in divorce down the road. But I don't think that he attacked her like that. Um, because yeah. like you said, DNA doesn't lie. But this case is wild. And it's... Imagine sitting in prison. I mean, for him to like really stick to his guns and say, even though he would have been offered parole if he admitted to it, no, I didn't do it, is like... He truly always fought for his innocence. And I'm glad that... Kevin Green was exonerated on this one. Yeah. And like I said before, uh, earlier in the show, like, you know, you you feel so strongly about, you know, about it one way. And then, yeah, like evidence, evidence is evidence for a reason. It literally turned the way I felt about Kevin Green completely around. Right. Because right? you were so, you I were was. like, this guy's innocent. I, I was. No, you were like, this guy's guilty. Yeah. I thought he was, I thought <laughs> he was straight up guilty, you well, know, up until that DNA, like, you know, right. and, and the other things that were happening. So... Well, you know what's even scarier? And it's like a hard way to end an episode. But there is such a backlog on cases that could be solved by DNA. And you got to think, look at how guilty Kevin Green looked. So how many people are sitting in prison right now, even potentially death row, and they didn't do it. And they're just waiting on DNA to be tested. There's definitely people that are wrongly being in prison. I guarantee it. I mean, mean, they're going to fall through the cracks. Yeah. You know, or just, just just not being investigated enough. So. So this was a really crazy case and we can't wait to hear what you guys think about it or have to say. But before we go, we want to thank all of our Patreons. Um, so our new Patreon since our last episode, episode 79, that's going to be Yvette Tenario, Angela Sears de Bono, Alice Hinkle, Lynn Olive, Philippa Holtzvix. I'm sorry if I'm if I say your name wrong, guys. I really tried my hardest. Vanessa Umbridge, Lauren Pfeiffer, Kim Thayer, 
Jess Huey. Jess Huey's back. She was our patron for a while, and now she's back with us. We're happy to have you back, Jess. Welcome back. Sherry Murr, Lydia Jane, Sierra Varley, Wendy Strickland, Florencia Valle Miller, Savanja, Daniel Hurtado, Sarah Lewis upped her pledge to $5, Catherine, Amanda Massey, Abigail Edgerton, Michelle Hamilton, Mark B. donated $15. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Fallon, Melissa Escort, Kelly Buffone, Morgan, and Kathleen Music. Guys, thank you so much for being amazing Patreons. Also, sorry if I butchered your name. (laughs) It's been a long episode, and I'm sure I mispronounced something. But if I did, and you want me to re-say it, you just send me an email on Patreon and let me know. (laughs) All right, guys, that's the end of episode 80, and thanks for being with us for three years. Yeah, it's been a a wild ride so far, and I cannot wait to continue. Yep. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.